There are a million ways to make money in the food service industry. You just have to find one. On the Titans of Food Service podcast, I interview real life movers and shakers in the food game who cut through all the noise to get to the top. My name is Nick Portillo and welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Let's jump right into it. Welcome back to the Titans of Food Service podcast. I hope everybody out there in the food service world who's listening, I appreciate you. Thank you. And if you can share this with as many people as you can, whether it's on social media or just telling your friends in the industry, the more viewership and the more it gets spread around, the more we can learn and grow it together. So thank you. Today, I welcome Paul Bresenden to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Paul is in a way, a marketing savant. I, I mean, he. every conversation I have with him is like drinking out of a fire hose when it comes to marketing and social media. He owns his own agency called 454 Creative and has been in business for nearly two decades. So I think this is going to be an episode where you get a lot of value out of. I know for me, I will probably write pages of notes. So again, thanks for listening and let's welcome. Paul, welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. I appreciate you joining me. You are someone that I look up to. And when it comes to the world of marketing, I, I don't know, at least in the Orange County area, I don't know if there is a better mind when it comes to this area. So thanks for joining oh, me here today. That's super flattering. Thank you. It's fun to be here. <laughs> Good. So why don't we start off with maybe a little background on yourself. Um, talk about 454 Creative and yeah, what, what you've been able to build. Yeah, uh, I started a web development shop 19 years ago in my parents' attic. Uh, I had put myself through school. I'm, I'm seven out of nine kids. So if you want to go to college when you have nine, eight other siblings, you figure out how to work and achieve that. So I uh, grew up when the internet was sort of starting to take off, when you know we had 386 and 486 computers that you had to build yourself, when the most clicked button on the internet was the skip intro button, when everyone had these flat. Are you, you probably missed that whole part of growing up. Yeah, for me, I I grew up in the early 2000s, uh, through the 2000s, really, from elementary school to high school. Do you have dial-up CDs from AOL? N no. <laughs> oh, that's, I, I, would, a... I would burn uh, CDs. I, I'd go on and get free songs off of LimeWire and burn them oh, on the yeah. CD. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah, no. Yeah, I mean, so we, we started off, I, I started off kind of building websites before anybody knew what to do with them. And that was sort of that was my entrepreneurial journey through college that put me put me through school, uh, and I would build computer networks for businesses and kind of fix computers that were hacked and that sort of thing. And I graduated college at that point. I was um, uh, working as a youth pastor, and so I graduated college and had to kind of pivot and find a career pretty quickly. Um, and so I, you know, decided to start. A, so the next week after graduating college, I started a company in my parents' attic and went out and got some clients and. Uh, I'd already been building websites to put myself through school. So it was an easy transition into just keeping my current clients set and deciding not to work for somebody else. And then, you know, hired, hired an employee on day two, hired another employee on week two, uh, and sort of <laughs> took off from there. And for me, what I realized uh, in this, like, kind of this journey of, you know, being 
computery to being focused on marketing was that people were chasing the shiny object. They knew that they had to do something, and this was mm-hmm. the new thing. They just didn't know what to do with it. And so for right. a while we were we were you know building websites for like other agencies because most agencies didn't have digital experience. And then very quickly realized that it's more important not to sell the development project, the shiny idea. It's more important to sell what to do with that. And so we started pivoting to selling mm-hmm. strategy. How do you actually do something with this? There's a key moment, I think. Oh, there's lots of key moments, but I'll pick one. Um, I remember building at that point, uh, Facebook was kind of the new cool thing for businesses. It was the next shiny object. We went from websites to social media and what do we do with this to ads to Google ads and Google ads kind of made the digital advertising world really accessible and everyone started spending gobs of money there. Um, I remember a web development project we did to build out this custom Facebook application for Beyond Meat. And that's a project I should have like just exchanged for stock instead of payment. But we, uh, we built that application and it took us, I don't know, a month or two to kind of build out this really cool sort of uh, custom experience on Facebook. And at that time you could build like an e-commerce store and these fully branded pages and all this other stuff, this little, little mini web portal in Facebook. And we launched this thing and literally three days later, Facebook shuts down that whole thing and says, no, everybody has to use their standard Facebook experience. And it was this like light bulb moment to me. Like I felt this tremendous amount of guilt of, hey, did I push them into this? And we didn't. They pitched it to us. And we we could do it. Uh, they didn't complain about it in the slightest bit. And it was, but it was this aha moment where I realized you have to own your marketing. The things that we think we own, we really rent, right? Our Facebook feed, we rent. They control the algorithm. They we think we own it because we built the follower base. Nope, we play by their rules. Same thing with our SEO. We think we own our SEO. We do all this content work for our website. We don't own that. Google owns the algorithm. They could change it tomorrow, and usually they change it tomorrow. (laughs) There's that that sort of thing gets upended all the time. And so what I realized is that you kind of have to understand how you're generating growth, and you have to understand the game that you're playing, and you can't put all of your eggs into one basket because you don't control that basket. Somebody else does. So that was that was sort of the like big growth moment for us as we started to realize now it's it's far more important to figure out how we're going to grow, what do we actually control in this process, how do we diversify that process, and then how do we achieve the growth that we're looking for in this in the smallest way possible so that we preserve the the rest of the profit for the organization. Sure. Yeah, that all makes sense. And what kind of now nowadays, what kind of companies do you work with? Is it like B2B or B2C? How does that, it, what is your sweet spot that you work with? Um, so it's primarily B2B. We have a few okay. sort of B2C clients that exist in the banking world. So we work a lot with credit unions and higher ed, but it's really working with considered purchase products, something that you're not doing an impulse buy with. Uh, there are dramatically different strategies that you do from B2B and B2C, and then dramatically different strategies that you're doing from a commodity transactional product where you're you're basically mm-hmm. buying something that has very little differentiation versus creating meaningful differentiation around what you're selling um, because that, that sort of evaluation period leads to a longer sales cycle, uh, a different, like the average number of touch points in a B2B sales cycle is greater than 14. Most organizations don't have 14 touch points defined in their marketing strategy at all. So you have to start working through, okay, what am I doing to reach 
my audience in the right way? How do I how do I set myself up to actually stand out? Because if I check, and this is what happens that I see, like it's more painful than we want to admit. But normally when we look at this, we struggle with what our marketing material should be, what should we should be saying, what should how we position our actual product or our organization. And we take the easy way out. We go and we copy what our competitors are saying. We tee up the same bullet points. We tee up the same sort of look and feel to what they're doing. And uh, I, I can't tell you how many times a CEO has walked into a marketing manager's office and said, I want to do this. And it's 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 really, at the very least, it's following a familiar pattern from an industry leader in the same category. And what that does yeah, that is it sense. creates, A, you think you're elevating it by saying, hey, I'm going to copy the leader. But what it's really doing is removing all the differentiation, right? If they check the same boxes and you check the same boxes, then at the core level, what is the what does the customer have to evaluate on you? Price. And price is a differentiator, but it's the weakest form of differentiation you can have, right? Yeah. There's no competitive advantage there. All it takes is somebody to undercut you in one day and you're you're toast. So what you uh, food service toast. Let's uh, let's get out of your analogies. <laughs> Like but yeah, I mean that that's the that's the the core of what we're actually doing with a lot of our clients is we're figuring sure. out how to give them a competitive advantage through brand positioning or brand messaging. Uh, sometimes through target audience, you can actually identify a different industry vertical and really go hard after that sort of specialization that gives you more differentiation. And so there, there's plenty right. of ways to do this in food service too. But that that's a that's sort of the focus of what we do. Yeah, I can definitely resonate with, you know, brands struggling to have their marketing message um, and maybe copying what their competition or what others <clears throat> are doing. I see it in, you know, in the broker business, when a broker is talking, a lot of times you hear similar type talking points, whether you're interviewing company A or company B, it's a lot of similar talking points. And one of those might be, well, we're operator focused, which means that they have relationships with like restaurants, the end, the end user in the in our in our line of work, and so we're operator focused. You know, it's it's a term that's used so commonly across brokers, and and I think it 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 I think as an industry we struggle a little bit of of having our own individual unique message. So that makes sense. So let me give you a little background on food service and how our sales process works. So the way it works right now is. On the manufacturing side, they 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 have different different industries that they go into. Maybe a, like the retail industry, which is going to be your grocery store, where it's going to be more B to C, or maybe it's through Amazon, you know, e-commerce again, B to C. But we're on the food service side, which is B to B, and a lot of times manufacturers, you know, they build their custom packaging and and brand messaging on the on the B to C side, the retail side, the CPG side, and on food service, the marketing efforts are a little bit more based around doing trade shows or creating point of sale. And so it puts a lot of pressure on the sales team to go out and drum up interest, build a relationship, present the product, uh, follow up. I, I think you mentioned that there's 14 touch points in B2B. I mean, there's so many touch points. And I wanted to get your perspective of maybe you've seen how you've seen it in other industries, you know, but it's kind of a slow, it's a very slow sales cycle. How are some of the other industries in B2B getting to their target consumer at a faster clip? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. 
most organizations don't cohesively track sales cycle length. Okay. Right? We just assume it. And sales cycle length is a difficult thing to track because what skews that data set is the customer that has already done the evaluation period and as raising their hand to saying, I need a competitive bid where they've already done their evaluation cycle and are now looking to just compare. Uh, and so that messes you up because you think that that sales cycle length is 45 days or 30 days or whatever. When it's really been a six-month process, you were just brought in later in the, the stage of it after they kind of done all of their evaluation. Gartner has some really mm-hmm. good stats on this. If you're not familiar with Gartner, they're probably the I'm not. Uh, leader in um, marketing research and sales research. They're a big consulting firm. Their, their, their stat is pretty telling. 67% of that buyer's journey is done digitally. And I think it's uh, somewhere in that same ballpark, 60, 70% of that is done. Uh, they, the uh, 67% of that, 60, 70% of that uh, decision-making process is already decided before that person reaches out to the brand. So wow. what that tells me is that there's actually more sales now done in marketing, done absent the brand, than done by talking to a salesperson. That's a really that's a really telling thing to think that more sales is done in marketing now than is done in sales. Yeah. And we see this in our own consumer behavior, right? Like most people don't want to engage with a salesperson. They want to evaluate on their own. When they're ready to make a decision, they'll go and talk to a salesperson because that's sort of the expected behavior. There's actually some really interesting stats and it's roughly 80-90% right now of people that are willing to engage and do a considered purchase, right? I think the study that that I looked at was done off of uh, customizable enterprise software. So something that requires a, you're looking at six, seven figure software, right? That needs a consultant to modify it or to customize it for your business with a very, very high licensing fee. This isn't something either you just go and impulse buy. It's not like I'm going to go purchase Dropbox for my company. It's something that I'm thinking this is going to run my entire company. I have to make this decision for the next three to five years. Right. And I'm going to go spend, you know, two, 300, maybe even a million plus on this software. The stat is that 80, 90% of, of, of those users would just as likely do that evaluation process minus the salesperson and just click and purchase online than they would in talking to a salesperson. The salesperson still wins by a narrow margin, one two percent, right? Yeah. But I think that that's getting to the point where it, it's not that it doesn't matter as much anymore. So, sure. but what, what I would say here is that most of the time, what we're doing is that we're injecting the organization is injecting a salesperson into the process to slow down the evaluation process. We're, we're hiding pricing information. We're introducing things that we think are of value, like one of the things you mentioned, operator focus. Uh, I, I hate to throw this out there, but that is a very, very BS point. If you ask <laughs> okay, every foods, <laughs> if you ask every manufacturer, is there one that's going to go and say, "No, we're not operator focused." Everybody's going to yeah, raise their hand yeah. and say, "Me too." Right? right. And so, what we think is differentiated is really a buzzword. It's jargon that that has no meaningful positioning whatsoever for the brand. So, we talk about brand messaging. Mm-hmm. I have a model for this. Right? It, it, it's Here's the here's the 454 Paul model. It's the DC3 model. Brand messaging should be okay. differentiated. It has to be unique. If you see operator focused on your marketing materials and everybody else's, go do the hard work and find something else. It has to be clear. I'd say operator focused is clear. Is it compelling? 
If you say, hey, we're operator focused, and the person on the other end of that table is eyes light up and go, thank God, finally, somebody, right? Then you've hit something. If you haven't, and they go, yeah, 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 you're missing the boat here. So clear, mm -hmm. compelling, uh, and then customer centric. It has to be out about them. You saying right. operator focused, I would say may maybe, maybe not, right? Operator focused means the operator, right? Like you're, you're framing it from your perspective, not theirs. So figure out how to frame it from your perspective or from their perspective, excuse me. If it, if it, let's say you were um, a food service broker and you were, you really are, you feel in your area that, that your geographical area, you are the best, you have the best relationships at the operator level. How would you have a, how would you package that differently? You know, instead of it being, you know, saying we're internally, we're operator focused, creating a message that's compelling to the manufacturer. Have you, there's a really great uh, office episode about this. <laughs> <laughs> Dwight and Jim walk into somebody's office to sell them paper. And the first thing that happens is Dwight sits down and flips a phone around and calls, just takes the guy's phone and starts dialing a number and it instantly goes to on hold music. And the guy that's sitting at the other end of the table is like obviously ticked because how socially awkward is that? Right. You just stole my phone in the middle of a sales conversation. And so meanwhile, Jim is sort of doing his sales pitch. Uh, and he gets to this whole sales pitch and they, and they talk about, you know, this whole thing like, hey, we're 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 customer focused. We're operator focused. We, we know what you need. We do whatever. And the guy is starting to grill him on price and the availability on stuff. And and then all of a sudden the phone kind of crackles to life. And what you realize is that Dwight had dialed the competitor that the guy was using. And it finally got through the on-hold music and was now going into a phone tree thing of, hey, let's talk on this. You know, and, and so the, you could see the guy's face light up like, why did you just call my competitor? So Dwight hangs up and then dials Dunder Mifflin. And the first thing that happens is Pam answers the phone. Dunder Mifflin says, he says, hey, can you transfer me to Dwight? And Dwight's cell phone rings or something like that, right? Like all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, you just proved that out. If you're going to say you're actually operator focused, then what you do is you prove it. It's not enough to say it. You have to show it. Mm. So a lot of times when we create brand messaging, it's not enough to say it. You have to prove it. And so what is the key messaging that backs that up? So if you're going to say, hey, we're operator focused, then you would say something like, uh, you know, dedicated account reps with cell phone numbers attached to every account, right? Don't dial the main line. Just call me directly, right? Or usually what happens if you're actually operator focused and you have the most business relationships like that, you don't have to say that because they know who you are, right? You can, that's one of the things that you can just leave as being secret sauce or have some conversation or somehow prove. But normally that's not something that you walk around as a badge of honor because it already is your badge of honor. They know who you are. Wow. <laughs> I... Every time I have a conversation with you, it's like drinking out of a a, a fire hose. It, it's there's so many nuggets, and <laughs> uh, you, you, I I just love it, man. I love it. But so let's again talking about the broker business. So the way that the industry is kind of set up is we whether you're in my area, California and Nevada, or you're in New York or Florida, our pricing is all the same. You know, we mm -hmm. we accept whatever the commission rate really that the manufacturer gives to us. And it kind of makes us, I don't want to say a commodity, but it, it makes us all the same. So we might, whether we do, we're more operator focused than the next person, or we do this a little bit better than the other one, the cost to hire us is still the same as our competitors. 
what's a what's a better way to I don't know get out of that that trap and I'm trying to think of how I'd form this question. It's it's around not becoming a, a commodity, being more of a value added service that someone would want to buy. You know, maybe instead of pitching ourselves, now I'm just starting to think. Maybe instead of pitching ourselves as here's a service that we offer, it's more of a product you can buy. You know, maybe a tiered pro- uh, product strategy where uh, option number one you get this, option two you get this plus more, and then option three you get everything you want. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, you're, you're you're on the right track, right? Like um, because one side of the equation is fixed, right? We assume mm-hmm. that we have to bump up the other side of the equation, what value we generate, to create that sort of differentiation. That's true, right? That's obviously true. Mm-hmm. There there are tricks to this, right? And part of this could be redefining a category of what you offer, so that you're not viewing yourself as a food broker. Uh, you could be some sort of other, you know, piece. I think you do this pretty well, right? You view yourself as not just a broker, but an agency, right? And so right. you're taking on the full, full sort of marketing engagement sort of efforts that most people don't have the expertise or the execution capabilities for. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing is you try in an ideal world, what you would try to do is to redefine your category. If you put yourself in the category of being just the food broker, then what you have to say is, hey, I'm marginally better than the other guy. Mm-hmm. Now, if you walk into it and you create, if you can go and actually create a different category, now you're the you're a different guy, right? You're the you're the food service uh, marketing agency. You're the food service some other piece that goes along with it that ideally would sit marketing agency would be confusing. So we'd have to do a little bit more work around that. But the idea there is that what you're offering is substantially different than what everybody else is offering. And so if if you're just sort of looking for incremental sort of a, here's an edge over the other guy, you're always going to be at that conversation of prove yourself to me. But if you can redefine your category, then you're somewhere else. And that's where I would focus my efforts, right? What kind of what kind of substantially different offering can I provide that yes, we do these other things, but it elevates us into a completely different category. And so, you know, there's there's lots of ways to do that. SLA agreements with your sales staff. I know construction companies, we've worked with a very large construction firm and we just sort of identified out, okay, what are the common, what are the common things that a construction firm would, the things in the industry that everybody hates, they don't show up on time, mm-hmm. right? They show up when they want to, they leave the job when they want to. It takes twice as long as they said it was gonna take. It costs us twice as much. We created an SLA agreement that says all of our crews show up on time and we measure it. 97.8% of the time, they show up at the job site when we said we were going to show up at the job site. We track through how much off, like minus change orders. If we said we were going to complete this on time, did we complete it on time? We track cost. How much did it cost? And then we put that as a dashboard on the website and you can look at it at any given point. We measure it monthly and you can go see positive and negative complaints in their scores. Great differentiator, right? Now you no longer have to say, Absolutely. oh no, we're going to show up on time. You're like, no, just go right. look at our website. We track that in real time. And they go, what? Right, so that there are certain things that you do in this regard to actually prove that out. But that's one of the first things. The other thing that I would say to this, and I think we, I don't know, you sort of alluded to this in the beginning when we talked about the difference between CPG, right, and going to B2B. Mm-hmm. A lot right. of the things that people are doing in the direct-to-consumer side is 
that's the stuff that gets talked about in marketing magazines and websites and what Google wants to talk about and everyone wants to do. And it's the super sexy things that our marketing managers or marketing people want to accomplish for us. The problem is, is they're grossly ineffective and the wrong strategy for B2B. So, and the easy way to categorize this is B2C marketing is hunting with a wide net. And it's normally things around what I would call brand advertising. And brand mm -hmm. advertising, if, if you're in a B2B market, is usually code word for, we have no idea to track how, how to track if this is going to work or not. So it's a blank check that the marketing manager wants the, for the organization to write without knowing if this actually turns into more revenue or not. Because it's targeted sure. around the brand, around a big, this massive big net that doesn't actually tie back to revenue. Now, B2B marketing, you have to think of differently. It's not hunting with a net, it's hunting with spears. I'm going after this very, very narrow set of audience, and it's normally 200 to 10,000 sort of prospects. And what we use is sophisticated marketing automation software to say, these are the people we're going after. We've defined who they are up front, and we're going to deploy a specific strategy to reach them and only them. Because in B2B marketing, what you're doing is you're narrowing your focus enough so that you have a reasonable shot of creating that one-to-one -one relationship where they trust you. You have to demonstrate trust and expertise, and that doesn't happen with the same old techniques that you use in B2C marketing. Just because they saw an Instagram post for you, they don't necessarily care. At some point, if they know you specifically and then they see that stuff, then that's reputation management. It's a tactic they use lower down in the funnel, and you can actually measure that. Right. But if you're just doing top of the funnel tactics and that's all you have, you hope it turns into revenue at the bottom. You're 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 basically doing the like throw stuff into the wind and pray and hope mm -hmm. it hits the wall. Right. Like that's not disciplined execution. That's seeing what sticks. Seeing what sticks is not marketing. Right. It's right. If, if you're just doing stuff and seeing what the results are. Right. Like that. Anybody can do that. If you actually have a tactical plan that you're executing against a customer journey map, that's what takes hard work and discipline and expertise. That's marketing. So if you were to go with the, so you mentioned that B2C is kind of, it's hunting with a wide net, whereas B2B is hunting with spears. And, and I think you mentioned there's like 200 to 1,000 prospects really that could buy your product. In the broker world, we represent multiple manufacturers uh, simultaneously. And so I guess if there was 200 to 1,000 prospects per brand in our given territory, how do you, well, first, how would you start with finding those 200 to 1,000 customers or prospects? Yeah, yeah that, I mean, that's the hard work of positioning. Positioning is the courageous decision you make to say, this is what I'm going after. So you define that or the brand defines that and you work with the brand to define that. It's normally, if it's, you know, the sliding scale of how many prospects you're going after is normally tied to the sliding scale of how many other people are doing the same thing as you. So if there's 10 to 200 food brokers in the same space, and if there's 10, then you're looking at 200 prospects, maybe maybe 1,000 prospects, right? If there's 200 brokers that are doing the same thing, then you have to expand that market wider. Remember, you can't boil the ocean in your marketing. There's too many competitors. So if you're just doing this super wide thing and nobody sees it, the algorithm will never get the concentration it needs to see the feed and have it push through. Like it makes your job 10 times harder. So positioning isn't just this magical thing of like, I know exactly what they do. The other thing that we, we I'll, I'll give you some mistakes that typically happen with this. We define okay. our target audience in really bad ways. We would say, hey, we're looking for uh, operators that are looking for an operator focused food service broker. How would okay. you ever find that, 
right? I have we, we have firms yeah. that come to us that say, hey, we're looking for organizations that are price conscious. Which ones are not, right? And so what you're defining is this thing that says, hey, the best customers are the ones that buy from us. No duh, <laughs> right? Like that's not a right. differentiator. When we look at target audience, what we need to look at is the firmographic demographic profiles of the people and organizations of stuff that we can actually search and sort by. So go okay. to Google. How are they? How are they building their audience models? What are the criteria that's in there? Go to Facebook. How are oh, they? Yeah. Is it? You can look at this up. You can go look into a Google ad account. Go look at a Facebook ad account. Go into Zoom Info. Go into Hoover's. Go into any one of these. And look at the specific search and sort criteria that you can sort by. Build your target audience off of that. Is it a job title? Is it a firm size? You can go into Zoom Info and say, show me restaurants that have grown headcount by more than 5% in the last 12 months. Right? You can actually put like together that. demographic data off of that. You can say, show me organizations that have more than 50 employees, that have more than one location, that have these sort of criteria. And then... Then once you've identified your organization list, I would assume that in this stage, you'd be primarily focused on what we would call account-based marketing, ABM, where you're saying, what I really want is the account. I don't care if the food and beverage manager tells me no, I'm going to go around him. I'm going to go above him. I'm going to go next to him. I'm going to wait for him to leave. and I'm going to go after the next guy because I want right. this organization. That's ABM. And so if you can go into this like ABM structure and say, hey, I've got these 10,000 firms and I'm going to be there, now you've actually achieved what you try to achieve, which is operator-focused. Because it's not just operator-focused. It's saying, I know where my value is and I know who benefits from this. I'm going to be there until they recognize that. Wow. I, what would be the tactic? Okay, so let's say you, you, you do your account-based marketing and you find the accounts that you want to target. What are the, Tactically, how would you... Let them know that you exist. How's, well, how would you do it in any real life, right? So the idea of automation, right? We tend to think of things like Salesforce or HubSpot or MailChimp, whatever email program we're using or prospecting program we're using or uh, you know advertising or whatever we're going to do. We tend to think it as the shortcut that replaces the human relationship. How are they going to find out about us? We're going to do this thing. My, my philosophy is that I don't think technology or automation should replace human relationship. It should enable it. If you're doing okay. it to go around the idea of they should know who we are, you're probably messing something up because algorithms or organizations don't buy people do. They have to know who right. you are. They have to trust you. They have to like you, right? If you, if you walk into a sales meeting and your goal was, how do I get them to like me and trust me? You probably will get the sale. If you go into the sales meeting thinking, hey, I got to convince them that I'm the best option, that's a different objective and much harder and usually not as effective. Yeah. So that's normally what we're trying to like do is how do I get them to like me? <laughs> right? And if I can get them to like me, then there's something there, right? And so there's lots of tactics around that, right? In an ABM structure, what I would typically start with is I would use the marketing function as that wide net to filter through who's okay. going to engage, who's real and who's not. So I would set a start with an email sequence from the from you know you kind of try to match up job titles right if it's the sure. if it's a very big firm the CEO doesn't normally reach out to the food and beverage manager it's normally the right. somebody you know somebody that's their peer so it's facilitating an introduction you can actually make that kind of elevate and say if it's you reaching out and you're the CEO and you're a small firm fine do that no big deal if you're a massive firm then you kind of do some nuance there so I want emails, especially the first touch emails, to be as real as possible. 
if you're doing a email outreach or an email sequence, you've got to cut through the noise. Don't make it sound too salesy. Make it sound short and human. Uh, some of the best emails that go out have typos in them on purpose, contractions, some sort yes. of thing. It may, don't make it feel so markety that they go, oh, this isn't a real person that's writing it. There should be an emotional connection on the other end of it that they look at it and go, oh, Nick actually wrote me this email. I feel obligated to respond. We all get our inboxes flooded with 10, 20. I mean, I literally get hundreds of spam salesy emails and you look at it first glance and you know it's fake. Write yeah, something that's real that feels one-to-one. And the trick to this is write them one-to-one to begin with. Before you automate anything, do it manually until you've got the, the, the email crafted and dialed in. Mm, I, I I had a good example of a few months ago, I got an email from UCLA and it was their continuing continuing education program. And they reached out and it was like a very personalized message. It was someone saying, hi, I'm the assistant of the dean or whatever. And we've you know, we've reviewed you online and we really think that you, we, you'd be a great candidate to talk to us. And I was like, that, is this a real message or is this just a, a, a spam message or is it an automated message? So it, it ended up being automated, but eventually the, the, as the emails came in over time, the assistant moved to the side and then the actual Dean himself said, Hey, Nick, just following up here. It was, I was just like, this is, I, I didn't delete the email for a while because I'm like, is one, UCLA is a great school, even though I'm a USC fan. Uh, UCLA is a great <laughs> school and, and why are they reaching out to me? They're making me feel special. They're, 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 they're yeah. tapping into something. And so if you were to, let's say you had 200 to 1,000 prospects and you start with an initial outreach and it, you know a personalized me- message to eat, each, do you just sit there and do all 200 to 1,000 or is there a way to automate that process too? Normally that process is automated, but you start with what gets you a decent response rate. Okay. So so start start manual. If it's 200, you could easily write 20 emails a day and send those out and be done in 10 days. That's not a big deal. Uh, you right. can automate the first touch of that. When it's a small number like that, it takes some time to build through what I would view as secret sauce, right? What emails work, which don't. What do I lean on mm-hmm. in my messaging that gets people to open them? The, the, their number is too small to do a lot of experimentation with. So that's why you kind of want to go slow and figure it out first before you start blasting everyone. Now, the whole goal of of this is to start creating some efficiency in what you do so that this becomes a little bit more. In B2B marketing, what you're trying to do is to take this big group of people and pull the needles out of the haystack who's engaging. Right. And so like most CRMs, if you're looking at Salesforce, it's really built for what information you think is important and you put it in there. What a, what a platform like HubSpot does, marketing automation software, it's kind of the new, the new version of the CRM. What it does is it, not just, yeah. it takes not just what you put in there, but it starts looking at what the end user, that customer is doing in their behavior and feeding that back in and saying, no, based upon how their engagement is going, you can score that and pull those people out. So let's say they open the email. Let's say they click through a link or they hit reply or they do whatever else, right? Now what that's doing is it's saying this group of people, you're focused on the 10,000, right? And you've sent email and you've engaged with them over the last few months. That 10,000 mm-hmm. is now whittled down to 200 of people that actually opened your email, looked at your website, checked out your marketing materials, engaged with you on LinkedIn. You can score all of that. So now you know who to focus on and it pulls those people out of the you know that big haystack. And now you can actually dive in and create more human relationship with those people. 
Otherwise, you're trying to do this with 10,000 people and you're spread too thin. You can't actually do it. In an ideal world, right. you're engaging with 10, 20 people every week, real people, right? And so now what I would view ABM, like the secret to this, and this is my my sort of approach to this. So I think the dating rules apply to sales. Okay. You get information from this sort of software in the same way that dating, when, when and I luckily grew up past the, the age of online dating, right? I met my wife at church and uh, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't, I didn't need to go through this, but dating rules apply, right? Everyone stalks everybody on Facebook or Instagram or mm-hmm. Snapchat or whatever it is. And so you get more information on that, that you should not share because you'll end up being creepy. Right. Yep. And so if they didn't tell you that behavior, don't bring it up in the conversation. Don't be creepy. So, <laughs> Hey, I just noticed that you clicked through my email today is creepy. They say, Hey, this guy right. is tracking. It's no longer human. Or, hey, I noticed you digging around our pricing page or our brands page. I thought I'd reach out and call. Creepy. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. Now, what it does yeah. do is to say, here's a great way of phrasing that. Hey, you were on the top of my list to call today. I thought I wanted to re- I wanted to reach out to you because mm. you've been I've been thinking about you this week. How's it going? Right? That Much that's not creepy. Yeah, personal, real. You and and it's true. Don't build your marketing or your sales efforts off of a lie. Right. But hey, there's a reason here that we're calling. It's I really value you. I think you're a good fit for this. Let's have a conversation. I think you'd be a great person. I think that we can help you a lot. I think that you're a great brand. Here's one of my favorite phrases. You're on the very short list of organizations like that that I identified that I really want to work with in Orange County. Can you say that one more time? Uh, I've actually gotten clients like this because it was real, right? I went and pitched companies and said, you're you're on the short list of like companies that would be like one of my top clients that I would love to work with in Orange County. I I thought about you. I researched you. You're my people. Like this is the, you're, you're the person. And there've been a few of them where I like, I have this conversation and I'm like, I have no idea what we could do for you, but let's talk. And a year later they come back and go, Hey, we thought of something. Will you work with us? They're like, yeah, it sounds awesome. We could totally do that. Magic is what we call that. <laughs> wow. Um, I like that. You're on a very short list of companies that I'd like to work with. That that sounds very, I mean, it's it's very personalized for sure. And it just makes the person receiving that think, wow, I, I didn't realize I'm, I'm special to somebody else. And I really like that. I think in a, especially in what we do uh, in food service, and probably like a lot of different industries, you have your sales team that sends out emails constantly to operators or distributors and trying to get their business but it's probably a sea of white noise i would imagine there's constantly people trying to get that especially if you're someone like a, a disneyland right who who doesn't want to work with the disneyland sure. and they it, it, it's a great place to have you know your brand recognition and whatnot if you can get it in there but how do you cut through all that noise and i really like that you're you're on a very short list of companies that i'd like to work with so in our industry, for the salespeople out there, well, one thing that we do a lot of is trade shows. We call them food shows. And they're either hosted by a distributor or a third-party uh, organization. You know, We have the National Restaurant Association show. That's a big one for us. There's upcoming here in March, or next month in March, is the Expo West. And so people will set up their booths and customers will filter through and you'll, you'll collect their data in some way, whether you write their name down or they fill out their information onto an iPad, whatever it may be. What is the best way, let's say after the end of the show, I have 40 leads. 
And, but I have, I only have so much time because I, I have to go on to the next opportunity. That's just how it goes. You know, our sales process is you're out on the road. We call it windshield time, driving in your car, going account to account. So to sit there and follow up with 40 accounts or maybe a hundred accounts, what's the best way to, to maybe automate that process? Uh, once again, don't think of automating. That's not okay. the goal. The goal isn't to make this efficient. The goal is to make this meaningful. You know, you, here's a couple of things that I would say from a trade show perspective. Number one, okay. don't treat them in batches. If you meet somebody at a trade show and they hand you your business, their business card, I would shoot them a text message or an email right then and there. Have it pre-done in a template. Hey, so great to talk to you today uh, or talk to you a few minutes ago. I'll follow up with you next week. Really excited about this conversation, right? Do something meaningful that immediately connects you with them. Because if you wait to the end of the trade show, guess what everybody else is doing? waiting to the end of the trade show and sending out an email blast to everybody. So now they didn't just get a message from you. They got a message from the 40 booths they visited. You're just in the middle of that noise. How do I break that noise pattern? So that's that's one. So two, I would build out a playbook before you start. Don't have to think about it, right? If you have to think about it and invent what you're going to do, it just adds that much more processing time and lag to them getting the actual message. Go in there knowing exactly what you're asking for and what you want to do. So that's where okay. a, a CRM, you know, I would, if I were you, I would take that business card, I'd drop it in a HubSpot, I'd send them a text, and I would assign that to someone on my team to follow up with immediately. Hey, just wanted to drop this in your inbox. I'll connect with you next week. Feel free to grab a time on my calendar. Otherwise, here's two or three options that might work for me, right? Make it human. Don't make it about your product. Make it about the relationship. The product is an obvious given. You don't need to sell there. Right, he's already sold. You've had the conversation out of that face-to-face piece. Make it real. Right. Right. Then the next thing I would do is probably automate the next stage of the process. Do a reminder. Send him a LinkedIn connection. Do something that's not automatable. Right. Now it's real. I like that. So what if, you should you... do is assign like this playbook, this process that I go through and specific out something that I that kind of just goes through there. And the first few of them are real tangible check marks that you do that are not just automations, but something that really connects you with them. And then you can chase that down further. But the quicker you break the pattern of what everybody else is doing, the the and and the 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 more immediate you make that point of contact, the higher the rate of response. So HubSpot is a great stat on this. So for every hour that passes from the initial contact, the response rate drops by 80%. Every hour. So if you wait a day, wow. you're in the like 2% chance of ever getting back to them. No way. Uh, for every hour, the response rate drops 80%. No wonder no one responds to me after two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and that's sort of what happens, right? You go to a trade show and you get 200 people and then you're like working through your list. I'm going to call them, right? That doesn't work. They've moved on. They're doing the same windshield to windshield sort of windshield time thing too, right? They don't yeah. have time for this. You have to strike while the iron's hot. Like those expressions are meaningful for a reason. No kidding. I, okay. So it, let's say I, I I get the, I talked to the person at the at the trade show and I guess it was, this would probably also work if I'm making a, if I drive to someone's restaurant, let's say, and make the presentation. I can text them or send a follow up right then and there, as opposed to going home. So would you would you get there? Maybe take a picture of their business card and load it into HubSpot, and then send the text from there, or do you just send a text straight from your phone? 
that's up to you, right? The organization, so there, it depends on the organization. Some organizations have business phones and they segment and protect their lives that way. If it's your personal phone and you don't want to deal with that, like from mm-hmm. a, then, then I would create some insulation there on purpose. But if, you know, there's plenty of apps that help you do that too. You can set up a secondary business line on your cell phone and do it that okay. way. Uh, what I would be careful of when you're using a text messaging service and it's like marketing service, they're always going to come with, you know, text stop to stop messaging. Like that to me screams right. Nick didn't send it. Right. So you got to you got to be very careful of that sort of thing. The other thing that I use in stuff like this, even if I want to protect and create process around my life, is scheduling software. So okay. I may get into the car immediately after that sales meeting and write the follow-up email and say, hey, it was really great meeting with you this afternoon. I just got back to my office. I'm thinking of this Y and Z. And I'll hit schedule send for an hour from now. Right. Before you... You'll have it, you'll you'll send it before send you even finish the meeting before I'll, you even start the finish or start no, the meeting. No, 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 no. Normally, what you're doing is you, you want something meaningful and relational about what you talked about, what you discussed, what their pain point was, what that needs. Right. So you need to go do the meeting, but you may want to go back to your car, draft the follow up email, right, and schedule send so that it hits there an hour later, uh, or it hits there in the morning, the morning of. Hey connecting with our team today on these four bullet points that we discussed, whatever. But you don't let time get away so that you lose that opportunity. You draft right. exactly what you talk. If you're like me, I'm, I'm ADD and I have 12 other things going on. If you don't solve it right then and there, chances are there's a high likelihood that you'll forget all the nuance of what yeah. you talked about. So document yeah. it in writing. It's meaningful then. And it sets up all the next steps, right? I'm going to have so-and-so reach out and schedule the next appointment. We're going to reach out to so-and-so and do these four things. Right. If you do that follow-up meeting right away and you tag in the people that are responsible on your team and on their team to take the next steps, right? It shows that I've disciplined execution. It shows that I'm thoughtful, meaningful, and engaged. But if I let an hour or two get away, I'll forget most of that stuff. Right. Get it going. Right. I I, I need to do that. I, I think what slows us down on the food service sales side is one, the, the windshield time. You finish up there and you got to go to your next appointment an hour later. And and then number two is you have some sort of follow-up that the customer needs, a maybe a distribution code or maybe you need pricing or additional just information. You have to create an attachment to send with that email. But I guess you're saying is once you leave, potentially send that message with an hour delay and then you can always follow up later with additional information. Yeah, you're 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 teeing up a response to that conversation saying this was meaningful. Here are the next steps. Everybody go do their job. In yeah. an ideal world, you have people that go and do that job. But if it's you that's doing that job, what you're doing is you're introducing that delay. So it feels like, no, they didn't just, you know, they didn't forget about me and they're not phoning it in. It's meaningful. Right. They're doing the work that's associated with that. Over time, what will happen is these will all start to look the same. You'll have right. a preset agenda and then you can templatize those. Now you pull up template two, you attach the two documents that you need that are custom for that. You change two or three of the bullet points of what they need and you move on. It, it feels easier and meaningful, but it's only because you mm-hmm. created the process and the rhythm to do that. So another, another good thing with windshield time that works for me is we used to schedule yeah. hour-long appointments and they would all stack up, which means that I had no time to do the follow-up immediately after the meeting. So we right. stopped doing that. Now I schedule 50-minute appointments. And I hold to those 50 minutes, so I have the 10 minutes to process through all those tasks before I move into the next one. So if you're uh, driving, 
right? It's it's a simple little hack, right? But it's super meaningful. If you're driving, the other thing you could do is you could call up one of your salespeople or your VA or whoever that is and say, okay, here's the follow-up from the meeting. Please draft this, have it ready in my inbox. I'll send that. I'll review and send that in the next hour. So there are ways of doing that too. You could just do it with a voicemail memo that gets dropped somewhere and your VA picks it up and handles all those tasks. I like that. Shifting gears. In food service, there's a lot of people that want to get on they think LinkedIn, you know, is a, is a great tool. And speaking for myself, I use LinkedIn. Uh, I'm sure as you've seen, and this podcast goes on LinkedIn, which everybody should check it out, of course. Uh, of course. But go, of course, going on LinkedIn, people they may not know where to start. They think it's something that's good for them, and or maybe they do start and they just they they kind of fall off the wagon a little bit. What are some easy easy LinkedIn strategies to achieve whatever goal that is. And let's just say the goal is to get more exposure. Mm, brand advertising, more exposure. Yes. <laughs> you don't know if they're in food service or not, but now you have a thousand followers and you're very excited. Uh, exactly. Who cares if they're all bots or they're in Indonesia? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a good vanity metric. Here's what I would say. Let me just preface it first with this thing. Do the thing that resonates with you the most. So okay. what I, here's a good marketing principle. Most, if not all, I would say all marketing activities are fungible. They're exchangeable for something else. So if LinkedIn okay. is not your cup of tea, go do Instagram, go do email marketing, go do podcasts, go do sales letters that you hand deliver, go do something, right? Send faxes. Who's sending faxes these days? Um, go do something that makes you stand out that you feel like is wired the way that you're wired, that you enjoy doing, and that works. Don't do something okay. because somebody else is doing it. Don't do something because okay. Nick said he's doing it and he's very successful in it. Uh, I would say that a lot of times what happens is because everybody is doing something, there's only really room for one to 10 sort of market leaders doing that thing. Those are the people right. they turn to. After that, it's you're, you're fighting with a competitive set to, to get the reach that you're looking for. So it's harder mm -hmm. to do. LinkedIn is great because it's really tied to your circle of influence. And so yes. there, there's some specific tricks to do with LinkedIn that I think are helpful. A, you need good, meaningful content. And that content type changes all the time with LinkedIn. So LinkedIn right now is prioritizing uh, video and audio, audio posts. So your podcast mm, works okay. really well for that. So those types of posts get higher engagement and further reach into the feed than other types. Their surveys get higher reach than pictures do or just a regular text message post. It used to be that you could post something like, hey, I have this unique stance in the industry. What do you think? And a bunch of people would see it. A bunch of people would comment it and then it would go. Now that doesn't exist. You actually have to generate rich media content in order to get into the feed. And then the way that the algorithm actually works is the more engagement you get to when you posted it, the further in the feed it goes. So I can't tell you how many organizations I see where they have all of their employees comment on it in the beginning. And guess what it does? The feed feeds it to all of your employees. So the only right. people that see that are all of your employees. I'm like, don't waste your time doing right. LinkedIn then. That's stupid. Now, if you have meaningful engagement and meaningful relationships, then I would look at, okay, what kind of contrarian take on something can I post or talk about that actually drives value or gets engagement in the real world, not just on LinkedIn? Right. What's unique that you should be talking about? This is a great, like, that's why your podcast is so great. You get to talk to a bunch of experts. Those experts say, hey, there's something different you should be doing. And somebody looks at that and goes, I need to try something different. What is that? Yeah. Now, what you do is when you post it, now be intentional about making sure that you engagement get engagement 
people commenting on it specifically. And there's a rule to it. I don't know what it is. It's longer than 15 words or something. A meaningful comment on what you're doing as close to when you post it as possible. So some yeah. of the tricks that I've seen people do is they have a little like cohort of people that are in different industries, different spaces that say, hey, every Monday morning or whenever I post this, we're all going to go out and comment on each other's stuff. And what that does is it blows up the algorithm feed on what actually gets shared. Now, that works yeah. if you're looking for a broad audience, right? That's a good little trick. Um, but that that's one. Of, now, the other thing that I would do is make it meaningful, make it real, make it human, Right. So it's not just for you to post and you to broadcast one way. This isn't just like a TV or radio broadcast where you're you're yelling out to other people. You should have this moment where you're engaging with other people and creating social obligation for them to engage with you. So once you've done your Monday morning or Tuesday morning or whatever post and a bunch of people comment on it and that starts to feed the algorithm, you should spend the next 20 minutes doing the same for other people. Go and post on their stuff. Offer some meaningful engagement to what it is ask a really good question or pull out a thought-provoking thing that said, hey, I really liked when you said this. That's something I'm going to take away today, right? That long-form content is going to feed and expose your, your, your reach in the algorithm as well. Uh, LinkedIn has a thing called the SSI, Social Selling Index. So if you go yes. to LinkedIn, I don't know, search Google search Social Selling Index, it'll give you an objective score on how you're engaging with other people, what kind of meaningful content you're creating, how many people you're connected to. Do So it gives you something to operate from. It's weak in its algorithm, but it does help a salesperson say, okay, how do I, I moved from a social selling score of 23 to 30. And in my space, right. that's pretty good, right? Like you can figure out what that is. You know, there's very few people that I see that are greater than 80 or 90. Like you're a rock star superstar. I think mine's at 53 <laughs> or 43 or something like that. Uh, it's it's an, what, what I would say is don't make the goal being, hey, I'm a, a LinkedIn god. Make your goal mm -hmm. that I'm engaging with real people and this is turning into real opportunities for me. Make like it human. That. That's what matters. Make it human. Paul, I have enjoyed our conversation today. How, how can someone reach out to you or get a hold of you uh, or work with you? You know, there's lots of ways to find me online. I'm on LinkedIn, P. Bresenden, B-R-E-S-E-N-D-E-N. -E -E My company's 454 Creative. Uh, you can find us online and all the social channels. It's probably the easiest way. I'm sure you'll tag it in and, the and show if, notes. It'll be great. Yeah, of course. It, it's going to be all over the internet. You're going to be broadcasted <laughs> everywhere. And uh, you're going to be trending on YouTube as well, I hope. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, I mean, we'll see. I, I run I've a digital marketing every... agency. It's not hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming on to the Titans of Food Service podcast. I I, as always, I, I, I loved our conversation. I, I, I have a full page of notes, two pages of notes here. And uh, you make me want to, after this call, I'm like, oh my gosh, I got so much stuff to work on here. This is great. So thank you for coming on. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. This is really fun. Thanks, Nick.